Section 8 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 28 The Huguenot Refugees. The continued persecutions by means of which the sovereign of France hoped to free his country from that which he regarded as religious heresy had a distinct and marked effect upon the history of England's commerce, manufacturing industry, and intellectual development. The revocation of the Edict of Nantes made life in France all but intolerable to the Huguenots and to others who, like them, had set their hearts on maintaining their own convictions as to religion and religious worship. The study of this period of history gives us another illustration of the evil effects which come from the attempt made by rulers of any country to suppress by legal penalties individual freedom of faith and thought. France is not the only country which provides us with such examples and illustrations. The history of England herself teaches us many lessons to the same wholesome effect. Religious bigotry exercised by the ruling powers has again and again created sectarian and local hatreds, which have brought about in their time something like civil war. Now the Protestants and now the Roman Catholics are the victims of such intolerance and are driven by it to the alternative of becoming either refugees or rebels. But we have, perhaps, in the conditions which came from the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, the most remarkable and the most effective picture in little of calamities which such a policy of persecution inflicts at last on the country whose rulers have made persecution their policy. We have seen already in the course of this narrative how the severities practiced against the populations of the Cévennes created a new and unexpected danger for France at the time when she most needed national unity to maintain her against her enemies in war. But the uprising of the Camisards was little more than a passing incident in the events of the long struggle between France and the states arrayed in arms against her. The religious persecution her sovereign carried on was the immediate cause of an emigration which deprived her of the intellectual and industrial services of whole masses of her citizens who could have contributed beyond measure to her national prosperity if only they had been allowed to live at home in peace and worship their creator according to the dictates of their own consciences. By a stroke of fate which might have seemed like a dramatic proclamation of censure on such a persecuting policy, the intellect the industry, and the technical skill which would otherwise have been at the service of France became the means of nourishing and strengthening the power of France's greatest rival, England. A perfect flood of emigration set out from the Huguenot districts of France, and the refugees found for the most part their new home on English soil. The trade, the industry, and the industrial science of England received new and lasting benefit from the intelligence, perseverance, and orderly lives of the new settlers whom unjust and cruel legislation had driven from their own homes 
to find a settlement and a welcome in English cities and towns. The literature of England was improved and enriched from generation to generation by many of those who sought on English soil for a relief from religious persecution. Even the military service of England was a gainer in many splendid instances by the policy which had banished capable and brave soldiers of French birth from the land of their forefathers. So far as Louis the Fourteenth was concerned, there was no moral palliation to be found for his adoption of such a policy. We can all understand, even if we can't excuse, the conduct of the enthroned fanatic and bigot who firmly believes that his own form of religion is the only one which can open the way for man to the higher life hereafter. A distinguished free-thinking writer of modern days has declared that he could quite understand and even sympathize with the policy of the Inquisition when he regarded that policy from the Inquisition's own point of view. The doctrine of the Inquisition was that man's eternal salvation depended upon his acceptance of the one true faith, and the writer to whom we refer declared that from that point of view any degree of persecution, any number of burnings at the stake, any infliction whatever of temporal sufferings would be warranted by the hope of thus coercing the majority of men into an acceptance of the religious principles which alone could secure their eternal welfare. Many a fanatical ruler who made religious persecution a part of his duty was unquestionably and sincerely animated by that conviction, and for a potentate of that order our free-thinking author would have had some consideration. But even our free-thinking author himself could have found no such excuse for the policy of Louis the Fourteenth. Few men of his time could have had less feeling of religious devotion, less sentiment of any kind which had to do with religious belief, than the sovereign who revoked the Edict of Nantes. King Louis was a thoroughly unprincipled, selfish, and frivolous profligate who cared only for his own ambition, his own pleasures, his own likings, his own hatreds, and nothing that we read in the records of his life suggests that he was ever inspired by any feeling of genuine religious fanaticism. The emigration from France went on increasing day after day, and before long, an entire population of French refugees had settled in England. Many fugitives from France, for the same cause, found their way into other countries, and wherever they made a new home for themselves, they won an honorable reputation for energy, intelligence, good conduct, and success. Up to the present day we can see that in the various parts of the world where the French refugees found a settlement, they have proved to be meritorious and valuable members of the community. England, however, was for the most part the chosen home of the refugees, and their coming may be said to have opened a new and distinct chapter in the industrial and intellectual progress of the country. Schomberg, one of William III's famous generals, belonged to a family of Germans who had come under the dominion of the French crown, when the Alsatian provinces were made by annexation a part of France. When the Edict of Nantes was revoked, the Schombergs became refugees and found a home in England. 
The head of the family, Frederick Schomberg, took service under King William, was by him created a duke in the English peerage, and rewarded for his services by liberal grants of money. Schomberg was killed in Ireland in the Battle of the Boyne. John Hill Burton, in his History of the Reign of Queen Anne, points with especial attention to the service rendered to English literature and to the story of England's progress by Rapin de Toyra, who is known to fame as the historian Rapin. He belonged, we quote the words of Burton, to a family of the original Huguenot stock, and he was 28 years old when the revolution of 1688 brought him to the conclusion that the sure place of refuge and comfort for one of his nature and opinions was Britain. He served under his countryman de Rovigny, whom we know better as Lord Galway, and was wounded in the Irish War. Conscious of the freedom enjoyed in the country of his adoption, he studied its laws and constitution, and it dawned and gradually strengthened on him that he should trace to its origin the national progress that had developed itself in the English Constitution. He was a close observer of the existing working of the Constitution and gave a signal rebuke to the common opinion that no foreigner can understand it in a thoroughly instructive commentary on the political divisions such as he found them during his abode in Britain. This first study of Rapin's was a dissertation of the rise, progress, views, strength, interests, and characters of the two parties of the Whigs and Tories. Rapin had greater work in his mind than any mere essay on political parties, however keenly studied and carefully explained. Burton observes that, with the singleness of purpose necessary to the accomplishment of great discoveries, or other intellectual triumphs, he resolved to devote his life to the task of bringing into light the hidden treasures of which he had discovered the external traces, as a geologist believes that iron or coal or copper will be found in the rocks distributed under his feet. For such a design the resources of life must in the first place be secured. These would not come as the immediate fruit of his labor, for that was not available until he had spent seventeen years on his task. He had some little remnant of the patrimony of his old respectable family. Bentinck, Duke of Portland, King William's favored minister, countenanced him, and he managed so to live as to be able to pursue his great project in freedom. But one item in his arrangements showed that he was not endowed with much more than the bare necessaries of life. He found that he could not afford to live in England until his work was completed. Hence, having made collections of such materials as he could only find in England, he settled himself in Rhenish Prussia for the completion of his work and his life. The English reader is not likely to be free from a feeling of regret that no means could be found to enable Rapin to continue his work and his life in the country which he had hoped to make his home and where he had won some distinction in battle before he had sought renown in books. When the Edict of Nantes was revoked, Rapin went in the first instance to seek refuge in Holland, where he enlisted in a corps of Huguenot volunteers, made the acquaintance of William of Nassau, became devoted to him and to his cause. 
followed William, then only Prince of Orange to England in 1688, and distinguished himself as a soldier at the Boyne and the Siege of Limerick. The natural course of things would have been that Rapin should settle down for the remainder of his life in the country which he had freely chosen as his home, and should not have been compelled by the mere necessity of cheap living to complete his work and his existence in another country. The English reader is perhaps inclined to feel a little ashamed that some means was not found in England for the historian to conclude his English history among the people whose national growth and development it was the main work of his life to describe. Much has been said in later days about the degrading effect of the patronage system in literature, and Thackeray made it a proud boast that in modern days no Englishman of letters would condescend to accept the bounty of a patron. It is indeed a better time for literature when the patrons of literary men are the publishers and the public, but it cannot be denied that in former days many a work which we now regard as a perennial treasure of English letters could never have been completed, could probably never have been undertaken, but for the help given by some rich man who had an appreciation of literary promise. Goethe, in one of his writings, records the fact that if he had been an indigent young author, he might have had, for the mere sake of earning a living, to seek popularity by producing some dramatic piece in the style of Schiller's Robbers, which was then the rage in Germany, a style which Schiller himself entirely abandoned when he had created a public willing to welcome his nobler dramatic efforts. No author now in any country could desire or could tolerate a revival of the patronage system if such a restoration were possible or were needed. But the readers of books must nevertheless feel some regret that at a time when the patronage system did exist and flourish in England, some patron was not found who could have enabled Rapin to complete his history in an English home. Rapin made a complete study of such materials as he could get hold of in chronicles and libraries. Foremost among his studies were the works of Holinshed and the chronicles of Scotland and of Ireland. Of course, the works of Holinshed and the various other chronicles from which Rapin had to draw his materials were, to a considerable extent, made up of fable and romance. Holinshed was, as Burton says, essentially the standard historian of the three kingdoms, and his works were popular in England in editions profusely adorned with picturesque woodcuts. Burton rightfully defends such authors as Holinshed and Bursay from the charge that they must either have been afflicted with intellectual imperfections or guilty of telling gross falsehoods when they reproduced as serious history narratives which clearly belong to the realms of oral tradition, romance, and fable. But at the same time he does, we think, less than justice to the chroniclers in his anxiety to do full justice to the conscientiousness, the judgment, and the intellectual skill of Rapin in extracting the genuine reality from the surrounding mass of legend and fable which the chroniclers gather together. No praise can be too high for Rapin's penetrating and methodical labor in distinguishing between authentic history and mere legend in the books which alone were to furnish the material for his monumental work. 
Burton, however, goes on to say, It may surely be at last pronounced as an established opinion that absolute fact is the foundation of all history, and that it must come clearly to the surface and be seen uncorrupted by any element of dubiety, as the foundation whereon any decorative elements, rhetoric or philosophical, may, if they are desirable, be raised. Then Burton declares that the great merit of Rapin was in his striving to complete a history subject to this condition, and it is almost as touching as the old image of the good man wrestling with the storms of fate to follow him in the struggles of his task. Not a word too much can be said in praise of Rapin's purpose and of its result, but we find it hard to believe that Rapin could have worked at his history without any regard for the legends and the fables preserved by the old chroniclers, or could have accepted as his guiding principle that there can be no foundation for history but in matters of ascertained fact. There can hardly be a surer guide to the early history of any people than may be found in the legends and traditions of their ancestors, which in the days before scientific research were accepted as truthful narratives. The mere fact that such stories were accepted at one period of semi-darkness as an actual account of what had happened in days more distant and yet more dark supplies the historian with most valuable material for the formation of a judgment as to the earliest growth and development of the race whom he has set himself to describe. We may reject, if we will, the whole Homeric story as mere legend and fable, but we have none the less to acknowledge that a history of the Hellenic race constructed without any reference to the traditions and beliefs which these poems illustrate would leave us very imperfectly informed as to the growth and character of the people for whom the Parthenon was built and the plays of Sophocles were written. We may feel quite certain that a really capable student of history like Rapin did not fail to take the fullest account of all the traditions and legends preserved by the old chroniclers when he was preparing his history of England. A record of ascertained facts and dates must be indispensable to history, but it cannot be history itself. Burton rightly observes, it was not until he reached the period of the Saxon Chronicle and the history by the Venerable Bede that the historian of the British Isles at that time could find his feet on any firm ground. Burton gives a very interesting account of the chronicles, manuscripts, and libraries which Rapin was able to study in order to make a safe beginning of his great work and bring it to a satisfactory completion. Nearly thirty years of his life were occupied in his task, a life work indeed in every sense. Rapin brought his book, which he called L'Histoire d'Angleterre, down to the execution of Charles I. A continuation compiled for the most part from notes and unfinished passages left by Rapin was published by David Durand, which carried the reader on to the death of William III. The whole work, of course, was written in French, but an English translation was afterwards brought out by Nicholas Tyndall, and Tyndall himself carried on the historical theme until he had brought it down to the close of George I's reign. Rapin's work at once found numerous students and earnest admirers. It won for itself the high encomium of Voltaire, 
to whom we must at least accord the merit of understanding, as not many other men have done, the art of writing history. Voltaire's admiration, we may take it for granted, was not the less readily given because the author of the book had been driven into exile to escape from religious persecution. Perhaps we shall think all the more highly of Voltaire's appreciation when we remember that the two historians did not in the least resemble each other in narrative style. Voltaire wrote history with a peculiar light and brilliant touch, which could lend the charm of romance to the driest and most exact record of mere facts. Warapin's main idea was to put his readers in full possession of all that could be relied upon as authentic record of England's growth and development. Rapin's work may certainly be regarded as the first history of England, complete up to its own time, and the foundation of all the histories following, and yet to follow it would tell to the world the story of the English people. It would hardly be possible to overrate the advantages which the skilled labor of the British islands derived from the settlement here of Huguenot refugees. In those days, skilled labor of the better order was not very common among English mechanics. Such of the Huguenots as were compelled to find a means of living by handiwork of any kind were for the most part gifted with a skill and an intelligence which peculiarly adapted them for the crafts that required manual dexterity, a certain refinement of taste, and something like scientific precision. The craft of clock-making and watch-making, the construction of ornamental wares, the production of tasteful fabrics, these and similar branches of industry soon began to be recognized as the special occupation of the exiles, who were crowding into the poorer and busier quarters of London and other important cities and towns. It began to be observed at the time that however poor and hard-working these foreign refugees might be, they usually showed a taste and refinement in the decoration of their humble homes, which could rarely be seen in the tenements occupied by English mechanics. The public of England was benefited at the expense of some of the great manufacturing communities in France. Lyon, for instance, which was growing to be the great center of industry for the production of fabrics made out of silk, was a heavy sufferer from the ill-omened policy which revoked the Edict of Nantes and saw some of the best of her silk weavers compelled to give up their homes and seek for shelter and for customers in English communities. If silk was wrought in England, Burton says, before the refugees came over, it was of a coarse fabric and trifling in extent, generally for the casual decoration of other textile fabrics. But with the immigration of the French refugees, all manner of figured silks and satins, silk velvets and brocades became familiar to the English purchasers. The phenomenon was seen, we quote from Burton again, of the French silkworm's cocoon imported into England to be worked into a fabric by French workmen and then exported to France or elsewhere abroad. The refugees also took a leading part in the invention and adaptation of machinery to do the work which up to that time had been accomplished altogether by hand. It need hardly be said that the mechanism of those comparatively distant days has long since been superseded by machinery of an entirely superior and different order, worked by forces 
the use and application of which had not been discovered at the time when the Huguenot refugees were settling down as occupants of workshops in England. But it is quite certain that in many of our industrial departments, even of those which have come to be regarded in later days as distinctly English, the first application of mechanism to productions formerly wrought by the human hand is to the credit of the skilled artificers who were driven from their native country and found a home in the British Isles. Many of the refugees, or at least of the descendants of the refugees, who had become accustomed to English life and English ways, and saw no prospect or had no longer any wish to separate themselves from the fortunes of the country which had sheltered them, began to change their French names and adapt themselves to their new home by the substitution of anglicized translations of their French patronymics. A writer whom Burton describes as a close observer and student of the old and recent history of the French working refugees in London tells us that the Le Maître called themselves masters, the Le Roi, king, the Tonnelier, cooper, the Le Jeune, young, the Le Blanc, white, the Le Noir, black, the Loiseau, bird. Not all refugees, however, followed this practice, for we are assured by the same authority that there were many of the Huguenot exiles, and even of the poorest among them, who still held firmly and faithfully to their family names, and that at one time there might be found in London slums and garrets men depending for their daily bread on the least remunerative of handicrafts, who still bore names which had once held high distinction in the history of France. Indeed, if we come down to a much later period, we may find in literature, in science, in art, in law, in commerce, in politics, in the army and navy, the names of men who had won distinction for themselves and whose names still carefully preserved and not transformed by any anglicizing process proclaim that their bearers belonged to some of the Huguenot families whom religious persecution had driven from France. But whether the names remained unchanged and were French to the last, or grew slightly modified in the course of generations, or became translated for popular convenience into genuine English, the descendants of the expatriated Huguenots were always known in England as intelligent, valuable, and in some cases most distinguished citizens of the country in which they had found a home and a welcome. In later days, some of the most eminent men who devoted their lives and their abilities to the cause of advancement and progress in every department of English life, philanthropists, reformers, leaders in every movement for the welfare of humanity, were the descendants of the Huguenot exiles. To mention only one instance out of many that could be given, we may refer to Sir Samuel Romilly, a man who rendered inestimable service to the mitigation and reform of the criminal code, to the abolition of slavery, and to every great educational work for the benefit of the poor and the lowly. The son or grandson of a Huguenot watchmaker, whose ancestor had settled as a skilled workman in London. In literature and thought, it is only necessary to give the name of Harriet Martineau and her brother, James Martineau. The policy of Louis XIV had conferred almost as much benefit 
on the country of his most powerful enemy as it had brought injury upon his own. We must not, however, seem to give countenance to any idea that France was the only offender in those days or ever since against the great moral principle of liberty of conscience. Every other country in Europe had sinned or was sinning or was about to sin against the same principle. The policies of rulers and states in those days, and even in later times, was too often inspired by the idea that the first duty of men in power was to enforce their own religious doctrines by penalty or disqualification of some kind. Even those who had themselves suffered most severely from religious persecution were only too apt when the opportunity came in their way to enforce, in their turn, the same principle of religious persecution. The reader of this book will have seen already in its pages that many an exile from France fought in the ranks of the English army against England's French enemies. But he will also have seen how at the same time Irishmen, driven by persecution from their own country, were fighting under French generals against the forces of England on many a continental battlefield. The Puritans from Britain, who went out to find a free home for themselves in the New England on the other side of the Atlantic, were for a long time as keen in the repression of any faith or worship not in conformity with their own opinions, as if they had never themselves known what it was to feel the injustice of religious persecution. In truth, the doctrine which maintains the right of every man to follow the dictates of his own conscience in all that belongs to religion and its forms of worship, is but a modern idea in the development of civilization. The more broadly that idea is expanded, and the more faithfully it is illustrated in the policy of government, the closer civilization will approach to what we may hope to be its destined consummation in this world. End of Section 8